Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you get access to episodes one week late and that you'll hear advertisements. You can become a supporter at colemanhughes.org and gain access to the private feed, which has no ads, gives you access to episodes one week early, and gives you an extra podcast episode every month. If you want access to the private feed but can't afford it, please email admin at colemanhughes.org and we'll help you out. My guest today is David Shore. David Shore is a political data scientist. He worked for the Obama campaign and was described in New York Magazine as Obama's in-house Nate Silver. You may know David's name because he was fired in June over a tweet that was widely viewed as innocent. The tweet cited research showing that riots, unlike nonviolent protests, tend to move voters to the right. I wanted to talk to David about the circumstances of his firing, but for legal reasons, David can't talk about it publicly. Fortunately, he is an extremely interesting person outside of his cancellation, and he's the perfect person to talk to about the lessons of the 2020 election. David was really a joy to talk to and a fountain of information, and I recommend you all follow him on Twitter. We talk about the basics of polling. We talk about why the polls underpredicted Trump's performance in both 2016 and 2020. We talk about David's skepticism of the so-called shy Trump voter effect, used as a tool to understand why people voted for Trump. We talk about why Trump's share of the minority vote increased between 2016 and 2020. We talk about what the 2020 election has done to the idea that demography is destiny. We talk about the implications of getting rid of the Electoral College. The surprising change in how super PAC money affects politics, how the protests and riots affected public opinion, and we talk about the future of Trumpism without Trump. One final note here, David's job has been to get Democrats elected. So he is a partisan, not in the pejorative sense of the word, just in the descriptive sense. I say this only because he often uses the words we and us in this podcast to refer to the Democratic Party. And as I make clear at one point, I'm an independent, so I don't speak that way. In any event, I think Democrats would be very wise to listen to him. So without further ado, David Shore. Okay, David Shore, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. Honor to be invited. So um, we have a lot to talk about, given that it's November 13th that we're speaking, just a little over a week after the election. And uh, before we get into everything, and I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think you're the perfect person to help me and, and my audience parse what is what we've gleaned from the election so far what models of the American electorate turned out to be right and which turned out to be wrong and what we can expect from the constantly shifting coalitions of the two parties uh, going forward and, and what we've learned, what, what surprises and, and what expected results uh, we've, we found out a week and a half ago. Uh, but before we get to everything, can you just give people a summary of, of your background, how you got into 
political polling and analysis and consulting work that you do? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I'd say I, I was really lucky. Uh, I was a math major in college and, uh, you know, kind of as I was going through, uh, studying pure math, I kind of realized, oh, I I don't think that's what I want to do with my life. And, uh, this was in 2007. And so, you know, the data science didn't really exist yet. And there was like a lot of, a lot more low hanging fruit, you know, just in terms of applying, uh, data to anything. And I was pretty into politics. So I started a blog that very, very few people, uh, ever ran, but, you know, me and my friend, we ran it for a couple of years doing like Nate Silver style things. And then I applied to work at the Obama campaign in 2012. And then I was part of the analytics team there. I built their election forecasting system. And uh, after that, I started a, the analytics team at the Obama campaign, kind of started a company uh, called Civis Analytics. So I was part of the, I went over there with my boss and was kind of the part of the founding team there. And then, you know, Civis uh, has played a pretty big role. I think in a lot of ways, they've been like the uh, IBM of uh, political data science in, in a lot of ways. And I worked there until earlier this year. So um, before we get into the election and what we've discovered about the electorate, I want to just rehearse a few of the most basic points about polling that you probably haven't thought of in a decade, but are worth reminding people. There's, I think many people feel like they themselves have never responded to a poll. And in view of the failed predictions of polling in 2020 and 2016, or at least the apparent failures, it might be just worth going over very simply why it's possible to learn anything of value from a poll of 500 people, say, in a country of 350 million, and maybe talk about the concept of randomization and why that's important and how pollsters achieve or fail to achieve that. Sure. You know, I think that I don't want to you know, talk up polling and, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. I think, you know, people have a lot of uh, a right to be suspicious of polls in a lot of ways. But, you know, just to talk through statistically, uh, you know, this underpinning of polling, this idea that when you if you talk to if you call a thousand people out of the 300 million people that are there, the underlying theory is that uh, if you take a sample uh, and you you ask them who they're voting for, that basically, even though you're not talking to everyone, that's a lot of people and really kind of the margin of error for talking to a thousand people is very low. And I think looking at it purely in that simple example, I think if you uh, went out to uh, a store and, uh, you know, if, if you and if you were, if you walked outside and you you looked uh, and you just kind of counted how many people there were and you did that you know, every single day a thousand times and you average the results, I think that uh, you'd end up feeling relatively confident. And uh, and so that's. That's kind of the idea uh, is just that, you know, sampling does work in theory. I would say, though, that I think the the real problem, you know, with polling is that even though it's theoretically possible to learn a lot about a large group by talking to a small number of people, a subsample of people in a group, and that's like kind of the underpinning of like a lot of modern society. The problem is that that really relies on this equal sampling assumption that you have hundred million phone numbers and you're calling everyone and everyone is just kind of, and everyone's chance of answering is exactly the same. You need all of that to basically be true in order, in order for a lot of this stuff to work. And we don't live in that world. 
the reality is that some people are substantially more likely to pick up the phone than others. Uh, some in ways that you know uh, are very well understood. Older people pick up the phone more. Uh, you know, women pick up the phone more. Uh, white people are more likely to uh, answer the phone. And when you put that all together, uh, you know, older, you know, white women over the age of 65, uh, something like 100 times more likely to, to answer the phone than, uh, you know, Latino men under the age of 34. That's a lot of bias. And if it was just those things, we could correct for it. But it turns out that, you know, what drives people to answer phone calls or not, you know, is driven by a whole host of factors that are very hard to control for, you know, whether it's their trust, you know, how nice a person, like how agreeable they are, or, you know, how much trust they have in the system. Or it could be that they're Democrats and Democrats are unusually enthusiastic because of the news that had happened this week. And so adjusting for all of that stuff is extremely hard. And uh, I think that people are, are very reasonable, you know, I think their intuitions uh, that, that this is something that is hard, that you can just like dial a bunch of people and then say something about everyone else. I think that that skepticism is, is founded. Uh, you know, we do the best we can. And I think that, you know, on average, to me, the surprising thing is that polls are ever right at all. And, you know, I think they, they do have a somewhat reasonable track record. They usually get things to within, you know, three or four points, which is nice. But, but it is an extremely hard thing and people mess it up all the time. Yeah. So the polls in 2016 and 2020 both underpredicted Trump's success. So the question is why? Were, was the same mistake made twice? Were different mistakes made? Or is there some third explanation? Yeah, I think it's worth decomposing what happened into two different stories. Uh, in 2016, the national polls were not particularly wrong. Um, you know, I think the final average was 3.4 and the final result was 2.2 in margin. So not not terribly different. But on a state level, you know, the reason why Trump's win was a surprise um, was because basically all of these states in the Midwest saw these giant swings toward Donald Trump that the polling didn't see coming. And, you know, the, no, I guess not just in the Midwest, really, if you look state by state, you know, the biggest predictor is that states that had a lot of non-college educated whites, you know, but particularly in the Midwest, or at least particularly outside the South, saw very big polling errors. Uh, but the national numbers were about about right. Uh, and so in 2018, uh, people, the national numbers were also about right. But the same polling errors actually occurred again. Uh, if you look, Democrats uh, really underperformed expectations in these working class white states like, uh, you know, like Ohio or Michigan or West Virginia is the, the most extreme one. And then we flash forward to 2020 and this exact same set of biases happen again. You know, people make these, these plots and you can just see that really the polls were wrong in relative terms, in basically exactly the same places uh, for three cycles in a row. But there was a, another phenomena uh, that did happen, which is that in 2020, the national polls were not just about right. Uh, the national polls were pretty wrong by historical standards. Uh, it looks like we're going to end up, you know, with something like a Biden plus four and a half, uh, maybe five point race. Uh, in the national popular vote, when once every you know all the votes are, are tallied, and that is not what the average, uh, what the national polling average was. Uh, you can see this pretty down the line, not just in the presidency, but in the Senate and the House, where, you know, everything was roughly two to three percent more Republican than everyone predicted in a relatively uniform way, a little bit more in Republican states, um, but uh, fairly uniform. 
And so these, you had these two things happening simultaneously and, you know, they had a similar, um, but some, you know, the, they, had, they were two different phenomena with two different causes, but I think that in a lot of ways they come from the same phenomena. And just to talk about that, when people talk about polling error, I think people misfocus on what actually makes polls wrong. You know, people really like to talk about turnout. They like to talk about undecided voters. Uh, they like to talk about, you know, what we call in the industry late movement. The, oh, the polls were wrong because everybody changed their mind at the last second. The undecideds broke our way or you know, one side really mobilized their base and the other side didn't. And that's actually usually not why polls are wrong. All of those things are possible. Oh, and I forgot. Also, people have this shy Trump hypothesis that people are lying to pollsters. As far as we can tell, that's actually a very rare thing. It usually does not happen. Um, It's actually worth dwelling on for a second because I've, I've heard a lot of people believe that. So what's the, before you continue, what's the evidence that that's actually not the case? There's a couple of pieces. You know, the first is that, uh, you know, we can, one thing people like to do uh, for this is they, they to get at this social desirability is they look at, are there differences between how people answer online versus on the phone that people there's, we can re-interview people multiple times and see how consistent they are. And then the other thing uh, is that uh, we can match survey respondents to the voter file. And something that we can see is that really the vast majority, uh, in, in the voter file, we have things like party registration. We can see donation records. You know, what we can see is there's a very strong relationship, you know, between what people say and what people end up doing, both in re-interviews and with external information that we have about them. The problem isn't that, you know, Trump voters weren't, you know, were lying, the real issue is that they just weren't picking up the phone. And that really gets to this, you know, core problem of why polls are actually usually wrong. It gets to this uh, thing you asked me about uh, you know, a couple minutes ago, which is that uh, when you call a bunch of people, um, polling working is built on this idea that the people who answer the phone are the same as the people who don't answer the phone once you control for the things that you wait on. And traditionally, pollsters have really waited. And when I say waited, I mean, you know, if if you uh, survey a bunch of people and the sample is 70% women because women are more likely to pick up the phone and you know from the census that the population is 50% women, you kind of apply a weight to the women to weight their responses down and you weight the men up and then things represent the overall population. And so basically, if there are things that you aren't waiting on, that are influencing someone's chance of picking up the phone, and those things are correlated with who they're going to vote for, then your poll is going to be wrong. And so that's why pollsters do do waiting. Uh, But historically, they've only waited on a very small number of factors, age and race and gender. And most recently, after 2016, you know, they started to do education. And the problem with it is it's very hard to know when you do this process, you simultaneously have to ask people the thing or have the information on the, on the survey respondents, but you also have to know the true value. And that's easier for a gender. Uh, the voter file, there's gender, you can count, so the census will tell you. But if you want to know, even for education, edu- people with college degrees are more likely to vote than people who aren't. So even if the census tells you that, you know, 30% of people have a college degree, it's very hard to know what percentage of likely voters have a college degree. That's like a very hard problem. But as a result, you know, pollsters have waited on a very small number of things. And most polling error comes from when something is predicting, you know, a response that they weren't controlling for. Uh, The industry term for this is survey non-response. 
response bias. I think people find it a little non-intuitive, you know, when I, when I say this, but the important point is that response rates are very low now. You know, it used to be uh, going back to the 1940s that Gallup could call people and you would get an 80% response rate. And I think that's because the world was a lot more boring back then, you know, so someone could so, you know, people would get a call and they go, oh my God, you know, a researcher wants to know my views on contemporary events. And the world isn't like that anymore. Now, going into 20, uh, 2016, which was, you know, the last year that, you know, my former employer did phone calls, you know, we were looking at 0.8% response rates. And so if you're in a world where Democrats uh, are picking up the phone at 1.4% and Republicans are picking up at, you know, 1.1%, that will actually generate a very significant bias. That'll be very hard to control for. And so that's where most of this bias comes from. And so, okay. Just uh, briefly, what what happens when, and I think you've you've mentioned it when we spoke uh, before this podcast, but what happens when the responding population differs from the non-responding population on a trait that's completely invisible but still correlated with political party, like a, a big five personality trait, say people who respond are more likely to be, to have some kind of personality to be neurotic. And that correlates. Is there any way, is that, is that a permanent limitation? Well, that, that's the whole problem. Then your poll is wrong. Uh, and then that, that's what's so horrifying about what we do is that you really need to control for as much as you can. Uh, in, in order, if you want your polls to be right. And, that, and that's, that's something that's very hard. And just to talk through these two different, Biases, you know, first the one that's appeared that appeared in 2016, 2018, 2020, and then the second one that you know appeared just in 2020. The first one, you know, after 2016, you know, we our polls were wrong just like everybody else's, and we did a lot of soul searching to try to figure out why. I think a lot of pollsters were like, oh, you know, the polls are fine, slate movement, whatever. And we we really wanted to be honest about the fact that we were wrong and that our measurement apparatus wasn't working. And so we we spent a lot of time and one of the uh, trying to understand. What, what went wrong. And one of the things that really came out was this uh, idea of social trust. It turns out, uh, you know, that's, that's a social science term, uh, a little academic, but it gets operationalized in this question of, do you believe that people can generally be trusted or do you think that people should keep to themselves? And uh, something that we, that we saw, and this, this is something that actually researchers have known for a very long time, is that people who say that people can't be trusted are uh, substantially less likely to answer phone surveys uh, or really any kind of survey. Their areas also have lower census response rates. Um, In a lot of ways, that's very uh, unsurprising. But that used to not matter. This bias has always existed. The question is like, why, why did that start making the polls be wrong in 2016? And the answer is really interesting, which is that until 2016, social trust used to not be correlated with partisanship. You know, once you controlled for age and education and all these other things. But then political coalitions change over time. Uh, You know, the story of 2016 was that a very large number of non-college educated white people swung toward Republicans and a very large number of college educated white people swung toward Democrats. And those non-college educated white people who swung against us were overwhelmingly, you know, had much lower than average levels of social trust. And so if you look actually among non-college educated uh, voters, Non-college whites who say that people can be trusted actually swung toward Democrats slightly, uh, while the ones who uh, say that people can't be trusted swung heavily against us. And so public polls were surveying this like high trust universe. And as a result, or in particular, this high, high trust subsample of non-college educated whites. uh, And there's like a lot of other, you know, trust is one dimension. There's a lot of other ways these groups are different. 
there are occupational divides, you know, to being a teacher, even though you don't have a college degree, there's a big difference between being a teacher's assistant versus being a construction worker. You know, we found that working in an office as opposed to not working in an office was like a very strong predictor among non-college graduates uh, for swinging toward Trump. And so that polls were surveying this group and getting the wrong answer. Uh, and that's why these biases were the largest in these states that had the most you know, non-college educated whites like the Midwest. Media bias is one of the great problems facing our democracy. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much time you spend consuming news. If your news diet is unbalanced, you are very likely developing a false picture of the most important news stories of the day. To combat this problem, I've recently been using something called Ground News. Ground News is both a website and a smartphone app that collects the most important stories of the day along with the various articles that cover that story, and then sorts the articles by their political bias in a user-friendly way. So, for example, I'm recording this on November 21st, when the biggest story is that a federal judge threw out President Trump's lawsuit requesting that the results of the Pennsylvania election not be certified. So I can click on that story and then get a collection of links sorted by political bias. I can then check out how the left is covering the story and how the right is covering it. But the most important part of this app is a feature called Blindspot. If your news diet is unbalanced, then every day there will be stories that you simply don't see. There are whole topics that the right is not interested in covering, and likewise for the left. So for example, today on Ground News, I can see that the left is more or less ignoring the fact that ISIS launched rockets into a residential neighborhood, killing eight people and injuring two dozen more in Afghanistan. And I would guess the left is not so enthusiastic about stories like this because they are hard to square with the narrative that jihadist violence is an understandable reaction to American imperialism. Meanwhile, the right is barely covering the fact that COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have surpassed 12 million today, and the virus seems to be spreading with a renewed vengeance. This obviously does not make America or the Trump administration look very good, so the right is not so interested in it. So that's the kind of thing you can learn every day with the Ground News app. This is a great tool to have if you're interested in having an accurate picture of reality. So I'll put that link in the description and you can all try it out. I want to pick up on the, the last point you made about the, the different types of people that are quote unquote non-college educated. And you, you mentioned that if you work in an office or you're a teacher's assistant, that marks you differently in, a, in an important way than being a non-college educated construction worker. And what that says to me is when we talk about educated versus uh, non-college educated, we're using education as a proxy for culture, for some kind of cultural divide. And uh, I was recently speaking to someone who, you know, was wondering, you know, because superficially you could see, okay, college educated whites go Democrat, non-college educated whites go Republican for Trump. Isn't it just the case that then that the more educated you are, the the more sort of accurate a model of 
the country you have, the more likely you are to vote for the party that's better. I mean, that's obviously, I'm an independent, but um, that's something a partisan might think or or just a, a rational person might think based on that split. But it seems to me the divide is it is not even really about education so much as it's about the culture that you absorb in an environment like an office, a college, or a school. Does that seem right to you? I think that's 100% right. You know, we talk about in social science uh, this concept of socioeconomic class. And, you know, the idea there being that measuring class is, is, is very, very difficult. You know, education gets you some of the way there. But if you are uh, a NYU dropout in Williamsburg as a barista, you have very different values than if you're, uh, you know, a, a nurse who happens to might be classified as having an advanced degree. And so I think that when we look at education, you know, that, that is a marker for culture. Something that's really hard is that there are other ways you can cut this too. You know, you can look at social trust and trust in institutions, which I actually think is also highly correlated with education and is also honestly probably a class or a cultural marker. But then the, the spicier uh, thing you can look at is uh, something called uh, racial, uh, racial resentment. In the, I mean, obviously that has a, a meaning in English, but in political science, it has like a particular meaning where you ask like a certain class of questions. In surveys, you can't just ask people, are you a racist? Though I think it'd be fun to try. I don't know how many people would say yes. But, you know, that, the idea is you can't say that. But clearly, you know, racism as, as an idea exists in some way. There are people, some people are more racist than others, uh, you know, in abstract. And so people ask these questions that, you know, try to measure, try to get at that. And so examples of this are asking people, how likely do you think it is that there are a lot of white people who are having trouble finding jobs because non-white people uh, are getting them instead? Or do you think that white people have uh, enough say in uh, how the country is getting run? Or a more classical one is, do you think that discrimination is the reason why African-Americans haven't been able to get ahead the same way that Italians and Jews and other, other, other disadvantaged groups have? I didn't, I don't make up these, I, I don't make up this word. These aren't claims for me or questions I'm raising. These are just standard academic questions. And so if you create an index, you know, of these, you ask a couple of these different questions and you, you know, average them, uh, something that really came out in 2016 was that if you statistically control for racial resentment, then education becomes totally uncorrelated. You know, low racial resentment, working class white people swung toward uh, Democrats and high racial resentment, college educated white people swung toward Republicans. Uh, And so, you know, that does capture a lot of the story. The only problem there is that a lot of people, a a lot of critiques people will make uh, of racial resentment as a concept is that racial resentment itself is kind of a class marker. Like if you're, a highly educated person, you're taught. I'm not supposed to say, you know, that uh, black people should bring themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever. Uh, you know, you're like socialized against it. And so there, there are like, uh, it, it's a really tricky thing that if you look at 2016, there are a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, another one is openness to new experiences. You know, you talked about psychometric traits. Uh, openness to new experiences seems like it was very highly correlated with swing against Trump. Uh, people who have very high uh, levels of openness trended Democratic, and people with low levels of openness, you know, trend Republican. Obama-Trump voters as a group were very were more low openness than any other vote combination. But again, that is something that's super correlated with education. And so it's this really annoying thing where you have all of these like similar but distinct things, 
openness to new experiences, racial resentment, education, socioeconomic class, trust in institutions, and they're all correlated with each other. And they're all clearly part of the same story, but it's very hard to distangle exactly what caused what. Yeah, I want to dwell for a moment on this notion of racial resentment. Um, And I've often wondered what exactly we're measuring when we ask someone a question like, when you say, do you agree that black people should work hard like every other group? You know, something like that. And I came across this paper by Riley Carney and and Ryan Enos, I think Harvard researchers, where you you may have seen this, where they they substituted a a random Eastern European group like Lithuanians in in these racial resentment scales and substituted them in for African-Americans and found that they got the basically the same responses from people of both parties. So people who would say black people should work hard like everyone else were just as likely to say Lithuanians should work hard like everyone else. And what they surmise from this is that alleged racial resentment scales are measuring is not properly seen, shouldn't be seen as racial resentment, but rather some kind of deep instinct for procedural fairness and meritocracy. Have oh, you come across that, I, or, or what do you? What do you? Think uh, you know, I, I haven't. I haven't read that specific paper, but you know, I, I, I do think I would push back against the claim. You know, what I would, I do want to make clear. While while I am, I am sympathetic to a lot of these academic critiques uh, that exist. Uh, racial resentment as a concept. I do, you know, want want to make clear that I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't want to. I feel bad saying this out loud, but you know, racism. Clear. I think racism clearly exists. I think some voters are more are more motivated by racially charged things than others, uh, and I do think that racial resentment, on even if it doesn't on an individual level capture everything, I think does is related. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, like to talk, but I think that you know the paper you just brought up does really highlight, you know, some of the uh, how a lot of this stuff works. I think it's. I think that racial resentment is a lot less cartoonishly evil. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's more subtle and complicated than I think that a lot of liberals will give it credit for. And so, the, you know, one thing you could say uh, in response to your paper is that without any context, it's totally true that a lot of, uh, a lot of conservatives will care a lot about procedural fairness uh, for some random, uh, you know, Lithuanian group. But there's a reason that conservatives and actually uh, care a lot about procedural fairness relative to liberals. And I won't I won't ascribe that entirely, but I think if you like step back and you look at where these, what areas of the country are high racial resentment and which areas are not, I don't think it's a coincidence that the white people with the highest levels of racial resentment live in the deep South. Or if you map out uh, racial resentment, I don't think it's surprising that it's areas where Trump did the most well, you know, did the best in the primary or that, you know, on a geographic level, it's correlated with places where, people make more, I think, clearly racist, uh, you know, search terms. Uh, and so, you know, but when they're Googling, you know, racial slurs and stuff like that. So I do, I do think that, you know, this, this is a construct that's real. I do agree that it's, it's more subtle than people give it credit for, but, you know, I, I do think that racial resentment as a concept is, uh, is important. I guess at a high level, I, I think it shouldn't be surprising in a lot of ways. If you have a situation where you have a candidate who, campaigned on uh, saying a bunch of racially inflammatory things early in his campaign, 
and then got a bunch of people who seemed to high, score highly on racial resentment questions to swing toward him, I think that, you know, racism has something to do with it. Even if the word racist is hard to define and racism is hard to define, uh, I, you know, I don't want to get into a semantic fight, but I do think, I don't think it's true that all of these working class white people in southeastern within, you know, northern Wisconsin trended against Democrats because uh, they were inspired by Donald Trump's uh, devotion to, you know, uh, fairness, procedural fairness. I don't think that's right. So, I mean, I guess this would be a good time to segue into the what seems to be, you know, g- given everything you said, and I don't want to dwell on it for too long, but it is surprising that Donald Trump has gained a certain amount of traction in the Hispanic and black electorate. If it is the case that his appeal is based on racism or partly based on racism, it's at minimum curious why, why that's the case. There has to be some way to, you know, that, that should either diminish the notion that racism is his appeal or else we need some more complicated theory that accounts for why his share of the people of color is, is increasing. So what is your, given what you just said, can you first like describe what we know, what is turning out to be true about how much his share of the minority vote is increasing and how you square that circle? Absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, I think if you just to go through the history, uh, historically, the trend for uh, really the last 40 years is that every single cycle, uh, white people had been getting more conservative relative to the country overall, voting Republican at higher rates, while non-white people were getting more Democratic. That happened consistently every single election from 1988 to 2012. And, you know, 2016 was actually the first break, you know, from this trend. It was, uh, I think, one of the underappreciated aspects of, that, uh, of the election. Uh, at the time, I think a lot of people wrote it off as Obama not being on the ballot anymore. Uh, but Donald Trump did, I think, something like two, two to three percent better among African Americans. And uh, how well he did with Hispanics is uh, something that people still argue about. But you know, my impression, uh, from what I can tell, is that at least in battleground states, he did slightly better with Hispanics uh, than Romney. And I think that that just stopping there and not flash forwarding next four years, I think that says something very interesting. That when about what racial resentment is and how people uh, how people perceive it, when Donald Trump dialed up the racial resentment, what happened was that a bunch of college-educated white people with low levels of racial resentment moved to Democrats and non-college-educated white people with high levels of racial resentment moved to Republicans. The non-white vote didn't move very much or swung a little bit against Trump. And I think that's something that liberals didn't expect. I think a lot of liberals were really hoping that kind of openly uh, xenophobic uh, you know, uh, language uh, would cause increases in Hispanic turnout. And I think it's clear, you know, that didn't happen, at least, or, and definitely not increases in support. Uh, so when you flash forward to 2018, you, you see this racial depolarization continue. Uh, white people relative to 2016 swung something like 5 or 6% toward Democrats. And non-white people as a group, you know, swung, I think, about a point uh, against them, uh, a point or two against Democrats. And this was like a, a meaningful thing. Stacey Abrams would be a governor if she did as well with African-Americans as Hillary Clinton did. Uh, and we lost the Florida Senate race uh, because we improved ground with white, white voters, particularly rural white voters, but then uh, lost ground with Hispanic and black voters and ended up losing a very close race because of it. 
so that was pretty important. And then now we flash forward to 2020. In 2020, it seems like, again, you know, the African-American vote has um, shifted toward Republicans, though it's unclear exactly by, by how much, but, you know, probably something on the order of, you know, one to two percent, while uh, the Hispanic vote has swung tremendously toward uh, Republicans. Uh, polls did kind of see maybe a third of that coming, I think, going into into it. Some people were expecting a three or four or five percent shift against, you know, toward Republicans. But so far, county level results really indicate that uh, there was a much larger swing. There's a county in Texas uh, that, yeah, where I, I, th- I think Zapata County that had voted for Democrats literally as long as it had existed for over a hundred over a hundred years. You know, Clinton uh, won it by 30 points and it now, you know, went to Trump. If you, uh, there are just these incredible swings in, you know, most concentrated areas where there seem to be a lot of Hispanics. And it is, you know, one of the major reasons we lost Florida was just our incredibly poor performance in Miami-Dade. And so there's still a lot we don't know about the nature of this Hispanic uh, divide. It's something that we're going to have to wait until we get more precinct results for and voter file results for. Um, But it does seem like in pretty broad swaths of the country, whether it's South Florida or South Texas or Houston or large swaths of the Northeast in, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic neighborhoods uh, in Massachusetts, that there's been a pretty broad double digit decline. It very easily could end up being as large as 14 percent. And that that's seismic. It's it's one of the largest shifts in racial voting um, that's really happened in, in decades uh, in one cycle. I don't know. I, I think that's super interesting. And then at the same time, white voters uh, trended toward Democrats. So in a lot of ways, you know, Donald Trump has ended this multi-decade trend of racial polarization and kind of reversed it. Uh, And I think that's something that I personally did not see coming uh, going into this. But I think it's clear at this point that it's happening. Yeah, nor did I. Um, So so there was some I want to come back to that in a moment. But there was some initial polling result, I think, that right the, the day after the election that suggested that the the LGBT vote and the Muslim vote had also uh, swung towards Trump a few percentage points or, or perhaps more. Do we know more about that now? Did that turn out to be robust? You know, I it's not something I've I've looked into, um, so I, I, I don't I don't want to comment too much. I think it's definitely true. You know, when people talk about the Muslim vote usually with regard. You know, uh, it's mo- most. Muslims in the U.S. Um, are Asian and actually, you know, South Asian. There's a lot of evidence uh, that very like that Vietnamese uh, Americans uh, swung pretty, you know, had a pretty substantial tra- uh, swing toward Trump. Obviously, Trump campaigned uh, in the South Asian uh, community, though usually more with uh, Hindus than Muslims. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure, but it, I, I wouldn't find it surprising uh, either way. So, I want to come back to this notion of racial resentment in light of the the minority vote trending towards Trump because, you know, intuition as well as personal experience would tell me that would suggest to me, if you were to give a a quote unquote racial resentment scale to the median Ghanaian or Nigerian immigrant or um, Central American immigrant or Vietnamese immigrant or Pakistani immigrant that they would you you would see results very similar to quote unquote racially resentful white non-college educated working class. And this is not to say how conditional on that being true. It seems to me there are a few things to observe. One is that, as you said, there's there's a never-ending semantic debate over what exactly 
something like racism means, which is, you know, not useful ground here. But then there's, there, there's the fact that it seems when I read about racial resentment in the media, it seems like it's framed in such a way that this is something, this is a uniquely a, a white, if not sin, then embarrassment, uh, rather than, you know, a multiracial human phenomenon that might not usefully be moralized, right? It might make sense to come up with some less morally charged language or language that could not easily be interpreted as you're a racist for thinking that this group should play by the same rules or, or so on and so forth. And it seems like we're less tempted to do that in cases where minorities have those same opinions. And I can see how a white person might feel well, you know, the, the finger's unfairly being pointed at me when my opinions or my instincts are widely are, are shared by a lot of minority voters as well. So w- what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to stress that it is definitely true. I, I think it's definitely true that a substantial fraction non-white voters do hold, you know, classically racial, racial resentful uh, language, though it is to be clear, like a lot, uh, on average, non-white voters have lower levels of racial resentment if you go and ask, which I think is unsurprising. I think, you know, if, if you did it a different way, you asked African-Americans about their feelings toward Muslims, it's quite possible that uh, they might be similar to working class white people. It's mm-hmm. something, you know, uh, though I, I, or, or I, I, Hispanics, I right? Yeah, I, I know. Yes. Like towards immigration, you, you, you often find nearly identical levels of anti-immigrant sentiment among blacks and whites, for instance. Yeah, you know, polarization uh, cuts against that, but I think within party, that's 100% true. And, and look, you know, I, I grew up in, in Miami, uh, one of the most you know, diverse places in the world. And, and, and I, I, I'm like fully aware of the fact that, you know, white people don't have uh, a monopoly on ethnic chauvinism. Uh, it's in, in some ways, you know, uh, it's definitely not, not true at all. Uh, and I think it is true that a substantial fraction of non-white people do agree, you know, with certain aspects of this worldview. What I think is really interesting is that historically, historically among Democrats, African Americans had lower levels of racial liberalism. To use a different a different word, but related, you know, uh, views on these things than white Democrats. And what's really interesting is that after 2014, that changed. You know, Iglesias Matthew Iglesias talks about the Great Awakening that there was this really massive, unprecedented uh, increase in racial liberalism among white Democrats. And at this point, white Democrats have higher levels of racial liberalism under most measures than Black Democrats, and definitely than Hispanic Democrats. And that's really interesting. Uh, I think that once you live in a world, uh, once you have a scale uh, where, uh, you know, white liberals are scoring higher uh, than non-whites, then it does kind of raise some questions at the limits of, you know, uh, what what this stuff means and what the implications are um, for messaging. And I think that when you talk about why it is that non-white voters, just to go back to that, you know, for a second, trended toward Trump. I want to be clear. I like. I really mostly, mostly don't know. Um, but I do think there are some really interesting uh, facts about the world. You know, one thing we asked people, I think, sometime in 2017 or 2018, uh, was we we asked uh, we asked voters, do you think that Donald Trump is racist? And something that was pretty interesting is that when we it looked when we talked to Black Trump voters, uh, something like. 
30 to 40 percent of them actually did think that Donald Trump was racist. And I, I think that gets at, you know, one, a lot of non-white people don't see the world uh, as a, you know, crusade or jihad against racism uh, in the same way that, that, you know, white liberals do, uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of non-white people have had to, you know, live and work with, you know, racist white people their entire life. And the fact that there are, you know, racist white people in charge is less of a big deal on a day-to-day basis uh, than a lot of white people might might think. And I think it does show that, you know, racial liberalism has kind of become a cultural marker among whites. And I think that, or, you know, kind of a proxy for this, like, within-class or, you know, within-culture divide between kind of higher socioeconomic whites and lower socioeconomic whites. And so I think, you know, as higher socioeconomic status, educated white people have entered the Democratic Party, and, you know, non-edu- uh, left, lower uh, ed- education whites have left the party, they've kind of take, they've become a larger share, and I think they've really taken over a lot of the party's messaging, a lot of the party's branding. And I think that culturally, you know, to get at what you said with racial resentment, you know, working class black people and working class Hispanic people and working class white people culturally have a lot more in common across a wide range of issues, you know, than they do uh, with college educated white people. And so in a lot of ways, I think it, it should be unsurprising that as as American politics has turned into this war between, you know, uh, high education whites and low education whites, that this has caused a little bit of racial depolarization. Uh, I, I don't think that's super surprising. So I guess this is a good, good time to go to this notion of demography is destiny, which is a phrase that has been thrown around, probably a phrase that basically means as the country, as the browning of America occurs, where the share of the population becomes less white and more Hispanic and Asian and um, African-American, that the Democratic Party will inevitably benefit from this trend and the Re- Republican Party will inevitably suffer. So this is a, a phrase that's been repeated quite a bit in the past you know, five to 10 years and celebrated on the left and, and feared on the right. Um, so can, can you explain, you know, this, this notion never really persuaded me, but, uh, c- cause it seemed to just assume a static population. It, it assumes that the average black voter and the average white voters is going to have the same beliefs today as they will in 30 years, which seems crazy given the history of population change. But what do we know about that notion now, given the 2020 result? Well, you know, I, I really like to uh, tell the story of Florida. In 2000, Florida was basically tied. Obviously, it came out to a recount. And uh, since then, population of Florida has doubled. It's non-white, the non-white uh, share of the electorate has doubled. And yet, Florida is actually, 20 years later, Florida is more Republican than it was 20 years ago. I think at any point in history, in 2004, it would have been really easy to say, oh, you know, we lost older voters and we won younger voters. And so, you know, in 15 years, we're going to win all these elections. And it's 15 years later. And clearly that hasn't happened. Clearly, clearly there's a dialectic here. There are these countervailing forces. Um, you know, just talk about in practice what those forces have ended up being, even though younger people, you know, have trended, uh, trended toward Democrats. At the same time, older people have trend, trended for uh, trend, uh, trended toward Republicans, and you know, actually, as 
the, the real shock and, you know, the reason why we didn't win Florida this time was that non-white voters have trended Republican over the same period. So I think it, it really does go to show uh, there's in political science, people talk about this concept of the median voter theorem, you know, this idea that there are these countervailing forces and that parties should expect to get about 50% of the vote over time. And I think that's, that's right. Um, you know, and I think the other point is even there are a lot of demographic trends uh, that should help Democrats in some ways. You know, people are getting married much later than they used to. Birth rates are lower than they used to be. You know, people are more are more secular. Um, they're more educated. And these are all things now that are highly correlated with being Democrats. But at the same time, parties have shifted in response to those trends. Like the Democratic Party is substantially to the left where it was 20 years ago. And maybe if the Democratic Party hadn't moved to the left and we were still running people like Al Gore, I don't know if it would be better, but you know, maybe you know, maybe then we would have had more of a chance or, but parties adapt to these things more than people realize. Yeah. That, that, so the same, I've had the same skepticism or skepticism for the same reason of the notion that simply getting rid of the electoral college, which I think might be a good idea, would inevitably benefit Democrats as well in the medium or, or long run, because I can't predict how under a new set of incentives, politicians and media would react and how voters would react to the knowledge that their vote now counts no matter where they live. So to me, it's a complete mystery how the electoral college would affect things. Do you have more insight on on that question? I mean, I, I think that there are very real, deep structural biases that go way beyond the electoral college. You know, if you look at, you know, the Senate, for example, in 2018, Democrats, you know, won by uh, had a wave year. They won by you know, eight points nationally and they lost two Senate seats. You know, the basic issue, you know, with the Senate, and this really shows up in a bunch of other places, is that rural places are overrepresented at every single layer of our government. And so if you look at our legislate, our state legislative maps, our congressional maps, our Senate maps, you know, Democrats uh, really would need to need to win by enormous amounts in order to win. And, you know, the Electoral College is a little less fundamental. It, it's kind of a fluke right now that there, that the Electoral College bias is so large, though it got larger this time than, than 2016. And I think that it'll probably stay large for the rest of the decade. But, you know, it's, there's nothing inherent. Its bias is a little bit more random. The Electoral College actually benefited Democrats somewhat in, uh, in 2012. And, but I do think, you know, when you look at these biases, it is, it is like a very a very hard, it is a real problem. I think it does very meaningfully influence like how many elections, you know, you'd expect Democrats to win. And I think it's you know, obviously unfair in a lot of ways. It mechanically works by disenfranchising, you know, uh, people who live in cities who are disproportionately non-white. But, you know, it's interesting because in theory, it should be possible for no matter what electoral system you have, even if you had a system that didn't allow, you know, that only let people in cities vote. Like in theory, some of the political scientists would tell you, that no matter what your electoral system is or how unfair it is, it should be possible to chase the median voter, move your policies so that, you know, you can win these people back. And I think a really interesting challenge is that uh, I think now it's become very hard for parties to do that. I I think, you know, these college-educated white people, the American electoral system is really built so that college-educated white people can't have a coalition uh, with, you know, them and yeah, it's, it's like really built uh, against a lot of ways. And so as education polarization has increased, it's really disadvantaged Democrats. 
But these same voters, you know, these same college educated voters have a wildly disproportionate amount of influence within the Democratic Party. You know, they uh, donate at much higher rates, they volunteer at higher rates, they're more likely to run as candidates. And obviously, they mechanically make up the staff who work uh, at all of these organizations. And so getting them to have less power. Uh, so, uh, or, you know, it's very hard for a party that is like really fundamentally run by highly educated young white people to pivot its branding to try to appeal more to older rural white people. And, you know, we're going to have to try, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, you've, you've talked in the past about the changing role of money in politics or the changing political valence of super PAC money in politics. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I, I think we, be clear, you know, I'm a left-wing person. I think getting money out of politics would be a good idea. But I think it's being it's worth being clear-eyed about what the current situation is, um, which is that right now, in 2020, the Democrats outspent Republicans at almost every layer uh, level of government, maybe not state legislatures. Um, but, you know, in the presidency, in the Senate, in the House, you know, we generally outspent our opponents almost uniformly um, in all of our races. And, you know, that was... That, that has two sources. You know, one, the people who donate, who do, who, you know, the so-called small donors tend to, tend to be overwhelmingly professionals and professionals as a group have trended tremendously toward the left. If you go to 2012, I think small dollars as a, or if you go back to 2010, small donors as a group, uh, you know, I think gave a slight majority of money to Republicans. But now, uh, I don't know what the 2020 number was, but in 2018, that number was more like 72%. Super PACs, you know, started to exist in 2010. Uh, those are, you know, unlimited spending, by super rich people. And they used to be 70-30 or 80-20 toward Republicans. And 2018, I think, was the first year where super PACs spent more on Democrats than Republicans. And, you know, the reason is that as education polarization has increased, the effects have been largest, you know, with the highest educated and richest people. I'm sure that, you know, we still lose billionaires as a group or, you know, super, super rich people as a group. But they're much more democratic than they used to be, um, and so structurally, uh, we now live in a you know we now live in this world where it's not money in politics doesn't have an obvious partisan valence, uh, or if it does, it's one that helps Democrats. And we also live in this world where if you look at who's how primary elections go, uh, left wing candidates, you know, like um, like Bernie or like Warren, were able to out you know outraise moderate candidates like Biden. And the reason for that is that the both of them have an electoral base of highly educated white people that donate a lot more than uh, Biden's base of, you know, working class um, black people and working class white people. And so that, I think this is creating a situation where I think the money in politics to the extent to it, you know, uh, to the extent to which it's a factor is moving the Democratic Party to the left. And arguably uh, making it harder for them to win elections as a result, you know, because campaigns are chasing this median donor uh, as opposed to a median voter. And that's uh, that's causing a lot of uh, it's probably causing problems. Okay, two more questions before I let you go. So one is about the the net effect of summer 2020 that will go down in, in history books. Uh, I'm speaking of the death of George Floyd in police custody, the protests that ensued, as well as the riots that ensued. I've heard two countervailing trends that both seem persuasive. One is that 
the initial surge in support for Black Lives Matter as the nation watched in horror as, as George Floyd died uh, beneath the knee of Jer- Derek Chauvin led to a huge upswing in support for and, and uh, registered voters for the Democratic Party, which had a positive effect for Biden on November 3rd. On the other hand, there's a trend of the nation watching in horror as cities burn and um, being driven towards the right as a result. So what do we know about the net effect, the racial politics of summer 2020 on the electorate? That's a great question. And it's uh, something that in some ways is hard to know. But I think if you look at the, if you look at the public polling trends, I think you look at them properly. I think that you could tell a story that there are really only two things that happened in this race. Um, this race was really incredibly stable. And the only two changes you really see uh, were one, a surge in support after uh, the Lafayette Park you know, incident where Donald Trump ordered uh, you know, the, the police uh, and National Guard to clear out uh, and tear gas innocent protesters in front of the church. You know, I, I think I really, I can say, I, I can really pinpoint that. I think if you look day by day, it's pretty clear that that was the event that made, made the polling go up. Uh, and then I think you can tell a story that toward the end of August, complicated a little bit by the presence of the RNC around the same time, but that some of the unrest in Milwaukee, uh, you know, led to a decline that, you know, basically it was spread over, you know, like a two week, a two or three week period, but basically completely undid, you know, the one to 2% surge um, caused after Lafayette. Uh, now that said, I think uh, polling is very hard in retrospect. I think given that the polls seem to have been overestimating Biden, uh, I think there's a case you could make that maybe liberals started answering the phone more uh, after the Lafayette Park incident or that, or that they answered less after the, after the unrest. So I don't know how much of those uh, trends are real, though I suspect you know the answer is probably most or at least some. But I think that those were really the only things that seemed to move polling. Uh, there was a little bit after the first debate, but really everything was incredibly stable other than those two things. And I think that tells you that the events were very powerful. In a lot of ways, they were the only things that mattered uh, for you know uh, the entire cycle, arguably more than COVID. So that's that's uh, you know which econometrically seems to not have any relationship at all with presidential vote share. So you know I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I think it gets to how, you know, nonviolent, uh, well, I don't, uh, it's just that there's a lot of power in organizing, but also a lot of risk in not having sufficient, you know, discipline. Uh, but like if you look not just at the horse race, if you look at issue polling, you know, there's basically the story that immediately after the start of the protests, there were these very large increases in various measures of well, some measures of racial liberalism, but also a lot of measures uh, about BLM favorability or attitudes toward the police. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, when people started pulling it again at the end of the summer, a lot of those gains had evaporated. And so it does show, though, I think not, not all the way down to where it was before. So it does show that, you know, one, uh, Nonviolent protests can be extremely effective, uh, and there's, I think, a lot of great academic evidence uh, in that paper. But, uh, but also that property destruction and all of that can be incredibly electorally damaging, and, and so there's like a lot of, a lot of risk. Yeah. Okay. So, so last question. This question is about how to evaluate Trump 
uh, you know, what the success of Trump, the surprising success, not only in 2016, but to some extent in, in 2020, says about the future of Trumpism. There's a tendency to want, and I, I notice, have noticed this in myself as well, a tendency to want Trump to be a fluke and a desire to just get a you know, John McCain or Mitt Romney type Republican next time, just from the interest of a person who thinks Trump's personality has made him uh, a dangerous and unfit president. So, so the, the question is, given, given the fact that Biden did not crush Trump, as was expected, and as I would hope should have been easy, given Trump's unusual flaws, you know, it, it may just be worth reimagining his flaws as not liabilities, but as assets. You know, I, I have to imagine that Republican presidential hopefuls, the, the lesson they're taking away from the past four years is not everything Trump did is a mistake and we should go back to the Republican status quo. It has to be something more like Trump's presidency for Republicans represents a half success where, you know, all the ways in which he departed from the norms of the Republican Party and, you know, did everything possible to piss off the, you know, half the country. A lot of that actually might point a direction in a direction of success for the Republican Party. And they might just see, you know, three or four of Trump's character flaws as, and his mismanagement of COVID as, the things to avoid. So, you know, the, the mold for them might be Trump minus the narcissism and perhaps minus the five worst scandals. So basically my question is, you know, do you expect that we are going to be dealing with Trumpism out of the Republican party as, as a direction or with a, a reversion to the status quo? You know, I, I would say predictions about the future are hard, uh, but I, I do think it's important to recognize what Trumpism is. I think that people really focus on a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of psychoanalysis of Donald Trump that people do. They say, oh, you know, people really want a strong, you know, male leader. They really like that he was on The Apprentice. But I think, you know, if you step back, every single country in the West right now, whether it's France or Britain or, you know, Italy or Germany, you know, all of them have seen this phenomena, anti-immigrant populists coming out, promising not to talk a ton about economic issues, and then uh, gathering and, you know, kind of having incoherent view, uh, stances on economic issues, and then gathering the space of working class people who used to vote for the left at high numbers. You know, this has happened basically in almost every, uh, you know, Western European country in, in Europe. And so there's something really fundamental here. And if you look at who the leaders of these people are, you know, they're, they're not all like Trump. Marine Le Pen is not like Trump. You know, the head of the AFE is, you know, like all, they're all pretty different. And so I think the personality aspects to why this coalition exists are, uh, are, are, are not, you know, uh, are not essential. Uh, but what is kind of there is really culturally being cruder, trying to appeal to having these working class appeals, talking about, being, you know, pretty stridently anti-immigrant, you know, trying to dial up racial resentment, whatever you decide that word means. 
And you know, the only difference is that it wasn't successful in these other countries because they have a different electoral system. But in our electoral system, uh, we very heavily uh, overweight the views of non-college educated white people. And so I, I suspect you know, the GOP was rewarded from the Trump era by large, very almost semi-permanent majorities uh, at, every, at every single level, state legislative, congressional, Senate, and also a world, you know, an electoral college uh, world where they can win with 40, you know, with 48 and a half percent of the vote. Uh, you know, I, I think that's going to be very tempting. And so I, I, I think that's the problem is that, you know, due to the nature of our electoral system, the Republican Party really has a very strong incentive to continue along this model. You know, something I like to do just to talk about numbers is Hillary Clinton got Barack Obama in 2012 got 52.0% of the two party vote. And Hillary Clinton got 51.1%. And if, in any other country, you know, if you, you know, went from 52 to 51.1, it would be fine. It wouldn't really mean anything. But what happened at the same time is that the bias of the Electoral College went from being half a point, you know, biased toward Democrats to being like three or four points biased toward Republicans. And the reason that happened is that all of these swing states had a lot of non-college whites who you know, this strategy really appeals to. Uh, and, you know, that's true along racial resentment, authoritarianism, all of these things are heavily correlated with class. And, and so, you know, that, that, that's why he was able to win was because this coalition has so much more power. It wasn't about actually bringing in more voters. It was about changing, you know, the nature of the coalition. And that's going to be super tempting. If I was a political party, I, I would, you know, if I, I, I wish that my political party could win with uh, with 48% of the vote, everything would be very different. And, and so I, I think it's going to be very hard um, for them to change. And that, that's even just from a strategic perspective. I think, you know, if you look at the nuts and bolts, uh, Republican primary voters, you know, are, are going to try very hard to punish. You know, so I, I personally don't think Trumpism is going anywhere, which I think is scary. It's one of, and I think that the only long-term solution, you know, to fighting Trumpism is fight the reason why it works by trying to get non-college white people to split their votes more. You know, we basically, it's awkward to say, you know, and I just want to go back, way back to, you know, when we were talking about, about racial resentment, is that there are a lot of white people with relatively, with, you know, relatively high levels of racial resentment. And there are so many of them that it's impossible to win elections without getting a certain fraction of their votes. And realistically, Trumpism is going to exist as long as you know, 80% of those people are voting for Republicans. You know, if we don't return to the 2012 Obama era status quo of, you know, 60% of those people voting for Democrats, then the electoral, then we're just going to keep having the same problem again and again and again. And this time, you know, luckily Donald Trump is super narcissistic and personally unlikable in a lot of ways. And so we were able to eck out a win, but next time we won't be so lucky. And so, you know, it's really imperative that, uh, you know, we do what we can to win these voters back. Yeah, it occurs to me when you said, you know, these things, racial resentment and authoritarianism and all of these other things are correlated with class. There's a problem, a universal problem of social bubbles, but there's a problem when the class that is labeling all these things, deciding what to call these is the higher class, right? Like right. It's, it's, it's up to people like me and, or, or, or whomever who went to the Ivy League to, to label what that scale means and to moralize it in however way it makes sense to me based on my upbringing in you know, sunny, liberal Montclair, New Jersey, 
and then that may look differently to other people. And of course, it's, it's, just, it's at some level, it's impossible to correct for one social bubble perfectly. But I think this, if there is one, uh, I'm sort of shooting from the hip here, but if there was one piece of advice for Democrats to beat Trumpism in the future, it's to be very aware of how one's existence in an elite bubble influences the messages that one finds compelling in a way that puts one out of touch with what the people you have to win over and who are winnable are going to find compelling. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, it's just a very hard thing to correct. You know, that's something that we've seen in our tests. We, we actually, you know, my old firm, we did, we tested a lot of ads. One of the things that was really clear was the more people in the office liked the ad, kind of the worse it did uh, a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, my favorite example was, you know, Hillary, in, in the 2016 campaign, there was this thing called the Mirrors ad. It's one of the most shared ad of the campaign. Of the campaign. And there's this, um, you know, there's this little girl and she's in front of a mirror. And then Donald Trump is saying all these really horrible things. And the girl starts crying. That's like, you know, that's kind of bad. And it turned out that that actually uh, cost us votes in large spots in the Midwest. You know, we spent millions of dollars on it. But there really were, you know, I, I personally, I'm a liberal, I like the ad. Uh, but there were a lot of working class white people who are like, you know, Donald Trump is talking to me about real issues that matter. And you are trying to guilt trip me about some politically incorrect jokes that Donald Trump made. And I don't care. And, and so even though, you know, even I, I, there's like a real issue, which is that the people who run, you know, run Democratic campaigns and I'm, I'm in this bucket have like really very different values than a lot of swing voters. Uh, and so that's, you know, that, that's why I think it, it's just super important to be clear headed uh, and do your best to, you know, have good measurement and also to try to have more representation uh, in, in a lot of concrete ways. Uh, the people, you know, right now, the intern within the Democratic Party, highly educated people have an enormous amount of power. And that's obvious, highly educated people always run everything. That is that is actually how the world works. But everything we can do to dial that down um, will make us better at winning elections. So on that note, David, thank you so much for your time. And uh, can you point people in the direction of the work you're doing now to your Twitter profile or website if you have one? Yeah, I am uh, David Shore on Twitter. Uh, last name is S-H-O-R, uh, David Shore. And, you know, I, I, have, I, I'll, I have a lot of fun professional stuff coming up and I'll be announcing it there. Uh, thanks so much for uh, you know, having me.